Hello and welcome back to Spotlight on Women in Health Ventures, the podcast powered by Thea, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering women as entrepreneurs in healthcare. Today we welcome Dr. Marla Dubinsky, who is the co-founder for Trellis Health, the first resilience-driven connected health solution for inflammatory bowel disease. Dr. Dubinsky is the Chief of Division of Pediatric Gastroenterology at the Mount Sinai Kravis Children's Hospital and is the co-director of the Susan and Leonard Feinstein Inflammatory Bowel Disease Clinical Center at Mount Sinai. Her primary research focuses on the influence of genetics and immune responses on the variability in clinical presentations, treatment responses, and prognosis of early onset IBD. Dr. Dubinsky received her medical degree from Queen's University, Canada, and completed her pediatric residency at Alberta Children's Hospital, in, also in Canada, and her clinical fellowship in gastroenterology and nutrition at the St. Justine Hospital at the University of Montreal, Canada. She completed her research fellowship in inflammatory bowel disease at Cedar sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, where she served as the director of the Pediatric Inflammatory Bowel Disease Center prior to coming to Mount Sinai. It's so it's such a treat to have you on with us, Dr. Dubinsky. We're very excited to learn more about your path to gastroenterology as well as your work building Trellis Health. First, I thought we'd start at the beginning and you can tell us a bit about your decision to pursue pediatric gastroenterology um, as a profession. Sure. So thank you for having me today. I'm excited to speak a little bit on first PGI, then IBD, and then sort of it all coming together in in Trellis Health. So let's start with why PSGI. I remember I, I knew very early on that I wanted to do pediatrics. It was just something, you know, I was debating, am I going to be a teacher? <laughs> um, I really want to focus on, you know, on children. And I sort of loved education right from the beginning. This was before I even knew that, you know, medicine was where I was going to head to. I always loved the idea of teaching, which does lead to sort of still continues to be a huge passion of mine uh, in the academic space. And I then went into pediatrics. It was reaffirmed during med school that there was absolutely no way. I think my first, my first rotation, I, I was in, I'm in Canada, I trained in Canada and my first rotation, which we called clerkship, which is actually back in the day, it's been a while. Um, we didn't get to do any clinical work really until our fourth year. Uh, of med school in, um, in Canada at the time. And my first rotation was internal medicine. Uh, and I just remember the laundry list of multiple medications that these uh, inpatients were on. And I just realized that I sort of want to be focused on more health prevention and being able to sort of take my passion for children and teaching. And uh, I was a camp counselor forever. And I, you know, I was just someone very involved in pediatrics. And I knew that by the time I got to my peds rotation and clerkship, this was reaffirming that this is exactly where is a good fit for me. So I went into pediatric residency. And while I was in residency, I love the idea that my gastro attending, I thought, wow, this person is so smart knows everything. I wanted to emanate everything that he was to me in terms of, I was like, there's this mystery in the bowel. You can't see anything. You know, you have to understand physiology, nutrition, liver, pancreas. Oh my God. Like the list, the list went on because GI, the GI tract affects so many different things in the body. Pediatrics from a failure to thrive or a growth perspective 
perspective is really tied to nutrition and all kinds of stuff like that. And I just like wanted to be exactly like Dr. Brent Scott. That was my image of myself. I was like, I want to be as smart as him. Not sure Mm -hmm. I can, but I want to be as smart as him. And I remember just being completely enamored with chronic conditions in pediatrics. I actually went into PGI, interestingly, thinking I was going to be a hepatologist. But I also love the idea that there is this disease called Crohn's disease uh, that impacted adolescents. Like back then, it was actually the average age was like 12 to 14. Now it's actually lower and it's closer to 10 to 12. So we are moving earlier and earlier in these diagnoses, which remains a mystery, but that's for another day. Um, And and I remember the fact that you can take someone who's like in their peak of growth, right? Because that's when kids grow is during puberty. And they're hit with this disease that could impact everything, literally derail them overnight, Mm -hmm. impact their growth and nutrition. And I remember seeing them get better. Now, back in the mid 90s, there was no such thing as biologic therapies, which happened in when I finished my fellowship, which has revolutionized the way we treat, you know, inflammatory bowel disease dramatically. However, back then, we only had a limited toolkit. You had to be really creative and figure out how you're going to get these kids back on their growth chart and back to thriving and going into adult adulthood with the toolkit they needed. So I was like debating between IBD and liver. I decided to go back to back home to Montreal, which is where I was born. And I had left Montreal to do all my education and my pediatric residency but I wanted to come back to Montreal because at St. Justine, which is the French side, it's the French hospital side, because in, in Quebec, you've got the English hospital system and you have the French hospital system, McGill versus University of Montreal. Uh, I decided that I was going to take the French that I had learned uh, way back and pretend that I actually knew how to speak medical French. And I'm going to go to the French side because one of the attendings had trained with Alagil in France. And I thought, wow, I'm going to go and train with the person that trained with Allergile, which is a very important liver disease childhood. Mm-hmm. And I always had this thing in me that I want to go and be next to the guy or the girl that was the guy or the girl. Like that was my thing. I always felt like I'll always be able to keep growing and rising if I could go with the people who have their finger on the pulse. That's the way that I sort of, you know, went through my training. Mm -hmm. And it just so happened that the chief at the time was also an IBD expert. And so I was doing both, very interested in both. And then I realized back then, to be honest, transplant hepatology was not even really very much of a thing in the mid 90s. It is much more, it's a division within you know, itself and it's its own discipline and has advanced fellowships and accreditation. And back then in Canada, there's really just one or two other individuals doing transplant hepatology. And I just felt that I had to start thinking about balancing personal and professional. I'll be honest, that's when it all started, was during fellowship, trying to figure out, is this going to be the only path I take and just be dive in 100% into my professional life? Or was I going to have a little bit of time to build my personal life or my social life as well? And then I became completely enamored with the chief at the time, who was no longer, unfortunately, with us, passed away. But he was everything to me. You know, he really created the stage for me to perform on, right? And that's what it's all about is you need to find that mentor who sees something in you and says, I need to clear the road for this individual. I need to sort of stand in the back and let her or him go to the front 
and let them fly, right? And they'll either crash or they're going to get their wings and they're actually going to fly. And he helped me, you know, get my wings and moved me to my next step in my career, which led me to Los Angeles. And it was there that I met my next mentor and the person, my next North Star. You see, you can have many North Stars along the way. You just have to keep having a North Star. I think that's like really what I've learned. Mm -hmm. Um, And I hope today I am a North Star for for others. But that was the point. And I trained with uh, Dr. Steph Pargan, who is to me the most incredible mentor and IBD thought leader, really globally. And he taught me the way to think now about changing people's lives. And I only did IBD. I actually did three extra years of fellowship training in IBD research on top of the clinical years I'd done in Montreal, Mm -hmm. um, because I knew in my belly, I just want to find solutions to this disease. And I need to be all in. There was no other way I was going to do this. So that's sort of my journey is sort of what got me to, you know, being pediatric GI, but it's more than that. I, I'm obsessed <laughs> with uh, inflammatory bowel disease, but not just in children as also I'm very interested in women's reproductive health and inflammatory bowel disease. Me personally, I've been through my own fertility journey and women with IBD tend to have some difficulties with fertility. And I felt like I can merge my passion, my own experience and help women go through motherhood and become a mother is the greatest gift that I can give them. Can you, I guess, describe exactly like what Trellis Health is and what you guys do? Sure. Trellis Health was co-founded by myself and Dr. Lori Kiefer, both of us at Mount Sinai. So it is taking what the two of us do every day and still to this day, by the way. The two of us have a day job. The two of us continue to do what we do at the IBD Center, but have been able to have a leadership team. It is its own company and more profit, you know, company, an independent company. And it is run by a female CEO, Monique Fayad. And Monique has been with us since almost the beginning. So she's very familiar with the two co-founders, roles and responsibilities and motivation behind Trellis, meaning coming from a place where we are the content experts since we still do it every day and silly to work together to be able to say, this is the founder's vision. How do I go out and execute? So in the fundamental, what it is, it's basically, there's a few components. There's a team, a technology, and the tools, okay? So essentially the Trellis company has been able to train patient educators and coaches Mm -hmm. to be able to quantify and assess a patient's resilience because Lori has, and the Trellis team have figured out a way to digitize the resilience assessment. It's a score. It's an accumulation of various different types of scoring in the behavioral health space. So it's part of it is the self-assessment on one's resilience, how they note their self-effectiveness, whether or not there are other mental health issues such as anxiety and depression or social anxiety, mood control that is impacting your ability to execute and be a disease manager. Like how do we make patients better Mm self-manage and what are the barriers to self-management? So we've been able to figure out or Trellis has been able to figure out a way to quantify what that means to be low or high resilient. So that's Awesome. So the first step was, can we measure it outside of what we do every day at the Mount Sinai IBD Center using Lori's method? So that that is able to be done. So that's part one. 
Part two is, are we able to hear the patient's story? Do we understand the concepts or the context through which a patient, what barriers they face, not just on an assessment, but hearing their story? So the ability to contextualize their journey as a patient and what have been their biggest barriers through the lens of resilience. So let's talk about the five core domains of resiliency in the face of chronic disease. One is disease acceptance. Probably the most important barrier to becoming a warrior is we have to have the ability to accept chronic, our chronic condition. This is something that's going to be with us. It's incurable. If I can get this right, shoot, the world is open for me, right? Because if I can learn how to accept that I need to think about my disease in various scenarios, although I may not want to, and then it catches up to me. Because if I ignore my disease, guess what? I'm ending up in the OR. I'm ending up with complications. And I, sure, I got away with 10 years of ignoring, but I'm suffering for the next 20. It doesn't make any sense, right? So a lot of it is just being able to accept that I have a chronic condition and I need to deal with it. So that's number one. Probably the next most important thing, which is where I have felt I've sort of hopefully done this for the last 20 plus years for my patients is optimism. How do I get the hope and optimism that I need to be able to know that this is going to be okay? You know, how do I need to think about it? How do I change myself from a stress response to a uh, resilience response? And that's going to be able to have me be optimistic about my future. Third is self-efficacy. How self-effective am I at managing this? Do I need a toolkit? Do I need some curriculum to understand what I need to be able to be self-effective? The fourth is, can I self-regulate? Meaning, am I able to self-regulate myself around all my thoughts, around what I'm going through? How do I control the situation better? And the fifth is social support. Do I have the team? not just the trellis team, but do I have a team of support that I know how to operationalize when I need them? Those are the five constructs. Now, what trellis does is the team is able to assess these along with their self-assessment and come up with a resilience playbook. Now, you don't become resilient overnight. This is a six to eight month process. So it requires a playbook that is going to not, in four weeks, are you going to all of a sudden meet all your five targets of resilience? You need to meet all five in order for you to be able to live your best life and thrive, not just survive with these chronic conditions, particularly IBD. So basically, Trellis has be able to do the assessment, have the team conceptualize the journey and the barriers that are most impacting the ability to be your most best self-manager and able to deploy the playbook. And the coach and the nutritionist and the patient educator are there in your back pocket when you need them and to reinforce your playbook to get you to the finish line. There is no such company out there. I'd love for you to kind of speak a little bit more about what it was like kind of building a company within the health system. So I feel like there's a lot of companies that are kind of in the private sector, kind of are like building it outside and then maybe we'll partner later on or have ideas of that. But I guess what your experiences was with that. I remember seeing Lori's data 
on how one actually personally saw my patients who were in the program. You know, this is way before Trellis was not even a dream, I think, or twinkle in our eyes is the fact that people were so brave and developing a new toolkit that Lori and the team, because it's not just Lori, we have social workers, nutritionists, pharmacists, nurse practitioners, nurses, incredible, incredible people mm-hmm. who were helping the providers keep the patients on track. So that was really the whole person, right? We had two teams working together, mind and body, integrated, yin and yang. Lori and I are definitely very, um, very compatible. I'm sort of the operational human solution, get stuff done, structured, in my mindset, uh, organized. Someone use other terms to talk about my organization. And Lori is everything else to me. So the two of us saw the patient the same way, but we came from different roads right? We all led to patient-centered, human-centric, whole-person approach. And I remember there was a publication out of UPMC in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. A friend of ours, too, Lori has a psychiatrist who's a IBD, who does a lot of IBD psychiatry, Eva Spigathy, and my colleague, Dr. Miguel Reguero, who is now at Cleveland Clinic, but at the time he was at UPMC. UPMC is a health plan as well as a university, as well as employer. You know, it's a very wide touch from a health plan perspective and payer perspective and delivery of care. And, you know, IBD is very expensive. Let's start with why there is even a business model. Let's start with that. How do you actually create a business if you can't make money? Okay, so you got to start with that. This isn't a nonprofit, like in my head, altruistic way of saying I want to educate. I do have a nonprofit educational company that I co-founded with my friend, Dr. David Rubin, who's the chief of um, GI at uh, University of Chicago. And we've been going since 2008 or nine uh, as a education company with our vision of providing state-of-the-art, you know, CME to so that patients' lives are impacted. The idea that, um, you know, we can find a way to educate patients and find a way and improve their lives, but find a way to cut the cost of care, right? Because that was really the limitation is that these drugs, we have more and more new drugs coming out, which means more and more new drugs means expensive. There is obviously a huge shift in the biosimilar space for a lot of our expensive biologics. The old, there, we have two of our older biologics that are now biosimilars, and there'll be more coming um, in the years to come. But these oral small molecules, these new pills, these new injectables, these new infusions, I mean, they're very, very expensive, as we know. I mean, this isn't a new thing. We know that drugs are expensive. And, you know, there are certain costs to managing a population. So when you take a pop health perspective, you have a bag of money and you're like, well, I can give them these very expensive meds, but I may not be able to do other things that they need, like pay for a psychologist, pay for a nutritionist. You know, there's a lot of unreimbursable services that this behavioral home concept comes with, although they're probably saving payers a lot of money. So at UPMC, um, they entered into sort of an agreement with UPMC, meaning the IBD Center and uh, Dr. Spigathy, and they have this, they had sort of this medical home concept, a specialty medical home where there are social workers, pharmacists, nurses, mm-hmm. psychiatry, all managing the behavioral health aspect. And what they showed is that when patients, they have this visceral inflammatory pain clinic, but they also have this sort of whole person approach. 
And then they showed that they reduced the emergency room visits and hospitalizations by having this whole person approach. When I saw what Lori was doing, I said, you know, Laura, I think I think we should look at the healthcare utilization in your patients who are using your approach versus those maybe who are eligible but couldn't come to the program. This is pre-pandemic where it was all live and in person. You had to come to get your cognitive behavioral or hypnotherapy or whatever the self-regulation toolkit was at the time. Obviously, COVID also showed us and was in our in luck in a sense is that when you're prepared to deliver it the method digitally. So we learned that you can build resilience at Sinai digitally. So that was a good thing for Trello. So you could see all the pieces adding up. And she looked at our healthcare utilization that was ridiculously impacted in a way where if you take patients who enter the GRIT program at Sinai and you looked at the, their youth utilization in the year leading up to when they entered the program to the year after they started the program. And we published this in our one of our peers peer-reviewed journals called Clinical uh, Gastroenterology and Hepatology, CGH, just published not too long ago, that we lowered the hospitalization rate of these low-resilient patients by 94%. We lowered ED visits by 71%. We lowered opioid utilization by 49%. And we lowered steroid utilization by 73%. And you look at that and you're like, I think there can be a business on this because if we're able to enter and show ourselves as a value-based care model, right? We come in, we provide some value to your population health management strategies that are all based on value, right? You're trying to, a value quotient means better outcomes at lower cost. How do you do that? You do that by managing the whole person. And I think we at Sinai embody the fact that we take this value-based approach to managing IBD. My head isn't in the sand. I know that these meds are expensive and I need to make sure that patients are appropriately getting the right medication, but I also need to make sure they're not getting misuse of any of these meds because they're being treated for inflammation when they actually have overlying functional abdominal pain and diarrhea. You don't want to keep giving more drug when they just need it. Lori, you know, as an example. So symptom burden management was leading to a lot of misuse, uh, probably overuse of steroids, opioids, pain, abdominal pain. It wasn't because their Crohn's necessarily was active. They actually had what we call functional abdominal pain, meaning they were having somewhat abdominal panic attacks, right? And that abdominal pain was leading them to go to the operating room. If you've had a bowel perforation and you ended up with an ostomy bag because you had some you know, infection in your abdomen and it was emergency surgery, you know the trauma or the post-trauma that could incur if you feel abdominal pain again? Mm-hmm. So we even had scenarios where it was almost like post-traumatic stress you know, around that if I get pain, I think I'm going back to the OR and I may have to have a stoma again. And we know there's a lot of anxiety around that. And we were able to face that head on and give them the toolkit to know and be reassured, overcome adversity that they're not going to end up back, for example, with a stoma, you know, all there's so much that goes into creating warriors, you know? And so when I saw that data, I thought, you know, what if we present ourselves as a value-based solution, unique for IBD first, but then Trellis actually was able to license the method across other autoimmune conditions, across chronic kidney disease, diabetes, heart disease, oncology, across the chronic disease spectrum or chronic condition spectrum, 
to be able to build warriors, not just in IBD. IBD is where we're starting. Mm -hmm. We, of course, irritable bowel syndrome is a huge chronic GI um, uh, condition as well. And uh, we, we have a solution for that as well. The fact that we believe that we can, if we save that much in our patients who came to, you know, the Sinai ED, for example, or were hospitalized at Sinai, imagine what we can do to all healthcare systems. We realize that if we could actually save money mm-hmm. and improve outcomes, we become a value-based solution for all payers, whether it's employers that are paying uh, whether it's a health plan directly, whether it's the patient, whether it's integrated health systems. I mean, the list goes on of ways to actually be able to offer a value-based solution. And if we realize we save X amount, then that's really the business model, right? You take it to whoever is paying for healthcare and you say, look, we believe that if you pay us a certain amount to mat- to oversee the resilience portfolio of these of your patient population at a population level, we can save X percent of your spend and improve the outcomes, then that's essentially the model, right? So, and then the idea is maybe as you, if you save more than you promised, is there opportunity to split the savings thereafter, right? And that's what a lot, there's this, that's sort of, there's many different ways that payers are, are approaching chronic condition management. There's right now fee-for-service continues to be a major, you know, the way that healthcare is paid for, Mm -hmm. but there's a lot of interest in some payers and some pop health departments or divisions at various hospitals enter into what we call risk contracts, where they say, we'll take on the risk. If we don't save you the money we promise you're going to save, it's on us. Then there's shared savings, whereby any money you make above what you actually promise to save them, then you split the savings. You know, there are different ways. There's also capitation models or bundled payments where you're given X amount to manage a hip surgery, as an example. And if you spend more than that, it's on you. If you spend less than that, keep the money. You know, that concept of, of different ways that payers are partnering. There has to be a change, right? Right now, although you know, if value-based solutions were everywhere, obviously it would speed up, you know, the the efficiency of getting trellis into every patient, in the hands of all patients. But we realize that this isn't a sprint, it's a marathon. And so I think that the ability to know and have faith in your solution, that you know you can deliver on what you're telling your customer that you can deliver on, that's important. Now, the value proposition for a payer as a customer is different than a patient. You know, there's a lot of solutions, including Trellis Health, that are also not waiting necessarily for all the contracts to be signed because the the payer cycle could be long, right? So there's a lot of approvals. There's a lot of things they need to evaluate as to whether or not you're, you know, whether their value prop is worth investing in you or paying you as a company to manage their patient population. Mm-hmm. And that's understandable. So in the interim, Trellis really felt that while we wait for that or while Trellis waits for that, um, myself as a co-founder, while I'm waiting for the payers to value Trellis as a, as a solution, Trellis made the decision that they want to be able to provide now this solution to patients. 
And so taking sort of a hybrid approach where they're also offering a solution direct to the patient, so we'll call it direct to consumer, but direct to the patient in this particular scenario, to offer them the ability to be part of this movement of resilience before even their employer or their payer has actually made, um, you know, included Trellis as part of their offering it to members. Because as a co-founder, I want people to not suffer one more day. And so the idea, neither does Trellis, right? That the idea that we've got this incredible solution that Lori and I feel very passionate about what we do day to day at the IBD Center and being able to get it out to the masses and democratize access. That's what it's about. It's about democratizing access to gold standard, mind-body integrated approach to managing chronic conditions. It would be a shame to have to, you know, maybe wait until all of contracting is done, et cetera, that there was this idea that how amazing would it be if, if Trellis could actually develop a way for patients to benefit immediately, like now, right? And so that sort of pivot to a direct-to-patient offering in the same time as being able to be able to offer a solution to payers I think is where healthcare is going, right? You know that patients want to have, you know, in general should be in charge of their health, right? Because you have to remember that patients have themselves to manage. The providers have thousands of those patients potentially, right? So it's probably more efficient for the patient to be their own self-manager to make sure that they're in charge of their health. And they can then understand maybe why the providers are asking them to do certain elements. And Trellis will be there to help educate around care plan adherence, keeping patients on the program, being able to say, this is a medication that your physician wants you to adhere to. Let me give you skills on why or how you can adhere best to their care plans and what it means to adhere, right? How do I, how do I train patients? The fact that they're going to be able to get that immediately and their toolkit, you know, tomorrow through Trellis Health, I think as a co-founder, you know, that's what makes your heart smile is the fact that you could get it out there quickly. Well, thank you so much for sharing your afternoon with me. Um, I've learned a lot in this last hour. It's been very inspiring. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's always good to lay out your story because you don't often get a chance to tell it because that's why I say it's only when like I start to tell the story that I'm like, oh, this all makes sense. I know exactly why I'm sitting here talking to Sarah today. Yeah, I think I think there's a lot more to come from Trellis. I have a feeling. And again, you have to be continue to be relevant. That's something I, I learned very early on also. And that I try and talk to, you know, the various people that I interact with. It's that you need to be able to be flexible and change with the way healthcare is changing. So, you know, how Trellis looks today, maybe it will look different in five years from now because we don't know where healthcare is going. However, I do think that based on where we are today, I have a feeling it's headed in the right direction. Thank you all for listening. Visit us on Instagram at Thea Healthcare, on Twitter at ThiaHC, and on our website at ThiaHC.org for more content and to join our vibrant community of young professionals, entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders in healthcare. 
Special thanks to our amazing audio editors, Ellie Park, Asim Jane, Nikita Gupta, and Katie Donahue. If you're enjoying our content, please consider supporting our podcast by donating at anchor.fm slash thea-hc slash support.